This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll start reading from JTA. The first article, House and Senate invite Israeli President Isaac Herzog to speak to Congress. By Ron Campeas, Washington. Republican and Democratic leaders invited Israeli President Isaac Herzog to address Congress to mark 75 years of the U.S.-Israel relationship. The invitation, which will almost certainly include a White House visit with President Biden, is unusual in that it comes before Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been asked to meet with with the American president. Herzog will speak to the Congress July 19th. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, a California Republican, said Thursday in a statement. He announced the invitation jointly with House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries and State, uh, rather Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, both New York Democrats, and the Senate Minority Leader Kentucky Republican Mitch McConnell. The purpose of the visit by President Herzog mirrors Speaker McCarthy's recent bipartisan trip to Israel to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the statehood of Israel and reaffirm the special relationship between our two nations, McCarthy said. Biden has not invited Netanyahu to visit since the Israeli Prime Minister began his most recent term in office in December and has said it won't happen soon. Biden has a decades-long friendship with Netanyahu but is maintaining distance while Netanyahu continues to support legislation that would sap Israel's courts of much of their independence. Opponents of the court reform plan who have turned out in massive protest rallies in Israel say the courts are a bulwark protecting Israel's vulnerable populations. Biden also is unhappy with accelerated plans for settlement under Netanyahu with rising Israeli-Palestinian tensions and with some of the far-right ministers in Netanyahu's government. Netanyahu recently announced that he will visit China which some observers said was sending a message to Biden that Israel can stand on its own, even to the extent of courting a major rival to the United States in the international sphere. McCarthy has struck a bipartisan tone in his Israel dealings, notable in a Congress that is otherwise deeply polarized. Inviting Herzog to speak to Congress to mark Israel's 75th birthday was first raised last year by McCarthy's predecessor as as Speaker, California Democrat Nancy Pelosi. McCarthy maintained an expansive tone when he held a bilateral, when he led a bilateral delegation to Israel earlier this year, which he noted in his invitation to Herzog. In May, I became the second Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives in history to address the Israeli Knesset, and now it is my privilege to host Israeli President Isaac Herzog for a similar honor, his statement said. The only other president of Israel to share this distinction is his father, President Chaim Herzog, more than 35 years ago. Next from JTA, a New Jersey town took down pride flags at the request of two synagogues, then put them back up by Andrew Lappin. In early June, the town of Highland Park, New Jersey, had one of its central thoroughfares decked out in rainbow pride flags to celebrate an upcoming LGBTQ-themed music festival. But four days after the display went up, Highland Park's mayor took four of the flags down. According to communications from city officials, Congregation Ohav Emeth, a local Orthodox synagogue, had objected to the quartet of banners waving in front of its building. 
So had the rabbi of another Orthodox congregation about half a mile away. Now the town's mayor, Democrat Elsie Foster, has reversed her decision again following public pushback. The flags are back up and Foster has issued a public apology for the incident. I learned a lot from the comments of many residents and especially the thoughtful teens who spoke at the mayor and council meeting. Foster wrote in a statement posted to Facebook referring to a meeting last week of Highland Park's Borough Council. I'm sorry for the miscommunication and missteps that took place earlier and I am happy to honor those who respectfully urged us to reconsider. The dust-up highlighted a local manifestation of what has been, at times, a broader contentious relationship between LGBTQ people and Orthodox institutions. Although some parts of the Orthodox community have become open to LGBTQ inclusion in recent years, others remain more skeptical of its place in observant Jewish spaces. The flagship Modern Orthodox campus, Yeshiva University, has cited its status as a religious institution in an ongoing legal battle over its refusal to recognize an LGBTQ student group. The recent death by suicide of a gay Orthodox alum, his friend said, highlights the strife of being Orthodox and gay. There is a cultural divide between the rabbis and the LGBTQ plus community, Miriam Kabokov, executive director of the nonprofit Eshel, which supports LGBTQ Orthodox Jews and their families, told JTA about the flag controversy. The rabbis think that LGBTQ plus symbols are about sex, Kabakov said. They are not. They are not. They are about not feeling shame anymore for who you are. They are about turning shame on its head so that you can walk into shul with your head held up high proud of everything that you are and not hiding who you are. Foster said her goal was to thread a line between what she saw as genuine religious concerns from one part of her community and a genuine desire for respect and inclusion from another. My objective is twofold, to promote the safety, security, respect, and support of the borough's LGBTQ plus community, while also respecting the religious sensitivities of our Orthodox Jewish community, the mayor said in a statement to JTA. I firmly believe that both objectives can be pursued simultaneously, and I'm encouraged by the positive feedback we've received from numerous residents who recognize the dedicated efforts we've made to address these concerns. Ohav Emeth's rabbi, Eliyahu Kaufman, declined a JTA request for comment, as did Rabbi Stephen Miotonik, who heads Congregation Ahavas Achim, another Orthodox synagogue nearby that shares a Vod or rabbinic council with Kaufman Synagogue. According to a spokesperson for the city, Medownik had sent a private communication to the mayor requesting that the flags be removed. Foster did not name Kaufman as the rabbi she spoke with or the synagogue that had made the request, but she said at the borough council meeting that the affected flags had been flying directly in front of a congregation that was located near the music festival being staged the weekend of June 9th. Ohav Emeth matches that location. I did have a conversation, a very private conversation with the rabbi, and a request was made, Foster told constituents at the council meeting on June 20th. Several public commenters, including a handful who identified as LGBTQ Orthodox Jews, had come to the meeting to express outrage and speak out against the flag's removal. 
Maybe I should have taken a step back and listened and waited, Foster acknowledged at the meeting, after adding that the rest of the 30 pride flags in the city the city had installed on that street for the festival had remained up. But that did not happen, and to err is human, and I happen to be human. Foster's admission that she had removed the pride flags at a rabbi's request contradicted an earlier apology she gave to her constituents in which she said, I want to assure you that our decision to remove the flags was not in response to any specific request or discriminatory motive. For decades, the Orthodox world has struggled with whether and how to accept LGBTQ people. Nearly all modern interpretations of Orthodox law forbid same-sex relations, though recently a number of Orthodox public figures have come out as queer. On the other side of the coin, some of the most prominent anti-LGBTQ voices on the Internet, including Chaya Rachek, creator of the social media account Libs of TikTok, are also Orthodox Jews. Rachik is one of the most prominent purveyors of the slur that LGBTQ people seek to groom or otherwise harm children. Surveys show that American Jews at large support LGBTQ rights, but as discussions of LGBTQ equality and visibility have taken center stage in the United States culture wars, even Jewish groups that advocate for LGBTQ rights have faced dilemmas about how to translate that support into action. A local Orthodox parent of an LGBTQ child who contacted Kabakov in distress told JTA that as a result of the controversy, Highland Park residents had raised more than $1,200 for Jewish queer youth, another organization advocating for LGBTQ Jews in Orthodox spaces. A rabbi saying that a pride flag goes against a synagogue's values is sending a message, intentional or not, to their congregants and beyond some of whom look to that flag as a lifeline, said the parent, Randy Ostrove. It's irresponsible and unacceptable, and we must demand better. Some of the crowd at the June 20th Borough Council meeting in Highland Park accused the local government of bowing to religious pressure, failing to protect the separation of church and state, and creating an unsafe environment for the LGBTQ community. One person who spoke linked the synagogue's request to anti-LGBTQ behavior by the Christian right. Others spoke up in favor of the synagogue's request. One speaker, attorney John Kovac, characterized the pride flag as a symbol of sexual immodesty that runs contrary to Orthodox Jewish values. The First Amendment and basic principles of respect for others support their right to object to attempts to force on them but has at times been displayed as a symbol of immodesty, Kovac said, adding, Mayor Foster did exactly what she should have done when faced with a conflict between constituents in town. She listened to and empathized with both sides and did her best to accommodate the needs of each. Matthew Hirsch, the borough council president, defended the flags at the meeting. When we talk about pride, we're talking about something that affects not one religion, not one code of beliefs, not one ethnicity, not one cultural background, he said. It really is a universal understanding of acceptance, and then intentionally it is to support and protect our friends in the LGBTQ plus community. While some in Highland Park portrayed the divide as one between the Orthodox Jewish LGBT commu- and LGBT communities, others cautioned against viewing the two groups as completely separate. 
Alyssa Kaplan, an LGBTQ Orthodox Jew, told the crowd at the council meeting that her dual identities made her a potential model and bridge for the community. I've had both of my communities pressure me at various times about giving up the other community, Kaplan said, but insisted that each could learn something from the other. She hoped the pride flag controversy would result in much more mutual respect for each other and create the opportunity for the LGBTQ and Orthodox communities to become pleasant neighbors and townspeople together. Eschel participated in a planned rally on Monday in support of the Pride Flag's return, which was organized by the LGBTQ Music Festival that took place earlier this month around the corner from the synagogue. The event went amazingly well, Kabakov said, yet she added, we worry about the future of Orthodox LGBTQ plus people. Orthodox leaders, she said, are lagging behind in fully integrating what was true all along that LGBTQ plus people are part of their shuls, whether they know it or not. Meanwhile, the student president of the Jewish Allies and Queers Group at Rutgers University in the neighboring city of New Brunswick was a featured speaker at a pride flag-raising event the city had scheduled for Monday at a separate location. In a nod to the controversy, that event, which was attended by the mayor, at least one Orthodox city staffer, and other local officials, began with a march down Raritan Avenue where the flags had been restored in front of the synagogue. Next from JTA, Orthodox students at Brandeis University decry ad calling school anything but Orthodox by Jackie Hodgdenberg. Orthodox students at Brandeis University are decrying an ad for their school that said the university is anything but Orthodox. The ad, which was published last Sunday in the New York Times Magazine, headlined Brandeis was founded by Jews, but it's anything but Orthodox. The two-page spread was part of a campaign launched in May that, according to an online statement from the school, is meant to demonstrate a mix of humor, seriousness, and an emphasis on its Jewish heritage. Brandeis was founded by Jews in the Boston area in 1948 as a non-sectarian university serving as an alternative to elite colleges in the Northeast, that had strict quotas limiting the number of Jews they would admit. It is named after Louis Brandeis, the first Jewish Supreme Court justice, has Hebrew in its seal, and has a large population of Jewish students. Now some of those students who say they view Brandeis as a comfortable place to be Orthodox Jews are condemning their school's messaging in this advertisement. On Tuesday, the leaders of the Brandeis Orthodox Organization, a student group, sent an email to its members saying they were hurt and disappointed to see something like this coming from our university. We know that for decades Brandeis has provided Orthodox Jewish students like ourselves a place where they could comfortably grow and succeed, said the email, which was signed by the group's president and vice president, Matt Shapiro and Shoshana Solomon. However, the statement that was made in this advertisement was unacceptable and antithetical to Brandeis's values. The two students added that they have been in communication with university administration to make sure that a similar message does not get published again, and that Orthodox students are recognized and respected on campus. In recent days, the ad has been criticized by other Orthodox Jews who wrote on social media that they found it offensive. The university said in a statement that the ad ad was a play on words meant to highlight Brandeis' unique story and history of innovation, 
as do the other ads in the campaign, and that the university is deeply committed to our Orthodox community members. The statement added that the ad was intended not to offend, but to underscore both the diversity of our community and our unusual origin story. The statement did not include an apology, but included an encouragement to read the full ad, which discusses with pride how Brandeis was founded by American Jews of all denominations. Meshulam Ungar, an incoming senior who served as vice president of the Brandeis Orthodox Organization last year, told JTA that he believes the mistake was inadvertent, but that he felt the ad was tone deaf. Orthodox people are especially attuned to being portrayed in a certain way in the media, Unger said, adding that the ad touched on the sense in Orthodox people's kishkas and the gut, that this is a very unfair characterization that is just inaccurate, and it plays on the aspects of the community which are wrong but are unfortunately commonly held beliefs. Unger said that on pure factual grounds, it is true that the school has a diverse student body and is particularly diverse with regard to Jewish issues and the Jewish people. That said, I mean, it's not an apology, he said, so it's unfortunate. And next from JTA, how Jewish activists are campaigning for reproductive rights one year after Dobbs, by Jackie Hajdenberg. Before sundown Friday night, as American Jews prepared to light their Shabbat candles, some also lit Yorotzite candles. The additional flames which signify mourning burned in commemoration of the first anniversary of Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, the Supreme Court ruling removing a federal guarantee of abortion rights. That is far from the only way religious observance is playing a role in Jewish efforts for abortion rights. Nearly 90% of Jewish voters believe abortion should be legal in all or most cases, according to a recent survey. And one year ago, the court's decision sparked opposition from a range of Jewish groups and mobilized others to advocate for abortion rights on the state level. In the months since, Jewish law or halakha has played a central role in those campaigns. According to most interpretations, halakha allows abortion in some instances, and requires it in cases where the pregnant person's life or health is in danger. That imperative has formed the basis of legal efforts in several states where abortion has been restricted or banned. At least one Haredi Orthodox group, Agudath Israel of America, came out in favor of the Dobbs decision. But Jewish activists who have gone to court to fight abortion restrictions cite Jewish law in their arguments that the new measures infringe on Jews' religious freedom. Both rabbis and -and rank-and-file Jews in Florida, Kentucky, Missouri, and Indiana have sued their respective states on religious freedom grounds, and some have partnered with leaders from other faith groups. Jews in states where abortion rights are not at risk are also working to more deeply anchor them in law. Jews have also mobilized outside the courthouse. As the Dobbs decision appeared imminent, the National Council of Jewish Women created a fund to help people access abortions. Since the Supreme Court decision, that effort has raised $1.5 million and, according to the group, has aided 10,000 people who live in states with abortion restrictions, paying for travel, accommodations, or the medical procedure itself. The group has also spearheaded initiatives to discuss reproductive rights at synagogue and to organize rabbis to speak out. 
Jody Raban, the organization's chief policy officer, told JTA that the Jewish community is engaged like never before, mobilized like they have never been. Here's where Jewish-led efforts to roll back abortion restrictions or entrench abortion rights stand in four states one year after Dobbs. Kentucky. A Kentucky law banning er uh, nearly all abortions took effect as soon as the Dobbs ruling was issued, one of more than a dozen trigger laws in states across the country. In October, a group of three Jewish women sued Attorney General Dave, uh, Daniel Cameron challenging the law. The suit says Kentucky law denies the three women, Lisa Sobel, Jessica Kalb, and Sarah Barron, the right to undergo in vitro fertilization, or IVF, a procedure that often involves the disposal of embryos. The plaintiffs argue that the ban interferes with their religious freedom because it prevents them from fulfilling the biblical command to be fruitful and multiply, which they can only achieve through in vitro fertilization. Our clients don't want abortions. Our clients are IVF patients who want to have children, said Benjamin Potash, one of the attorneys representing the women. He said the Kentucky law made his clients beholden to a Christian definition of life under a secular law, and that's an infringement of their religious beliefs, and the harm is they can't have kids. The lawsuit currently sits before a Kentucky state circuit court, and the plaintiff's attorney has filed a motion for summary judgment. Another court challenge to the law brought by local abortion rights groups was rejected by the state Supreme Court in February, which returned it to a lower court. Last week, the abortion rights group withdrew it. The Jewish women's complaint argues that Judaism has never defined life beginning at conception. In a court filing in response, State Attorney General Daniel Cameron, who is running for governor, twice denied that claim and also denied that the women are speaking on behalf of all Jewish people. Missouri. Missouri's own trigger ban took effect following Dobbs and bans all abortions except in cases of emergency. In January, an interfaith group of religious leaders filed a lawsuit challenging the ban on religious grounds. Two weeks ago, Missouri's Attorney General's office asked a state judge in St. Louis to throw out the lawsuit on the grounds that only health care providers, not the religious leaders bringing the suit, can be prosecuted under the state's abortion ban. But attorneys for the faith leaders have told their clients that the state's tactic is standard court procedure. We're feeling really hopeful and optimistic about it, said Maharat Rory Picker-Nice, the executive director of the Jewish Community Relations Council of St. Louis and one of the plaintiffs in the case. I think these processes are never quick processes. She added, we've been heartened both by the conversation that's been started as a result and people understanding the impact of particularly Christian nationalism, but these attacks against separation of church and state. We are hopeful of the impact that it will have in Missouri. Picker Nice, an activist who has trumpeted other progressive causes in Missouri, said that even before the Dobbs ruling, she and other Jewish activists had campaigned for reproductive rights in Missouri, which had restricted abortion access before banning it last year. I feel like I'm just another link in a chain of generations of Jewish women and men who have been on these front lines, she said. Florida. 
Current Florida law bans abortions after 15 weeks, and one year ago, Rabbi Barry Silver of the non-denominational congregation Lador Vador in Boynton Beach challenged that ban in court. His complaint has since been amended three times and has added additional plaintiffs, including a Quaker group, a Buddhist reverend, a Unitarian Christian pastor, and a Jewish obstetrician gynecologist. But though the case drew attention last year as an early faith-based challenge to abortion restrictions, it has yet to be heard in court, a move that Silver claims is political. When ours was filed, we drew a judge, unfortunately, who was appointed by a Republican governor of Florida who is not very sympathetic to our cause, Silver said, referring to Leon County Circuit Judge Lee Marsh, who was appointed by former Florida Governor Rick Scott. Nevertheless, Silver, who is also an abortion rights attorney, said he and his fellow plaintiffs have a lot of evidence and a lot of allegations. He said a Holocaust survivor and congregant of the Dorvador, Helen Daniels, recently submitted an affidavit to the court saying that she has seen what happens when a government tries to criminalize Jewish law. The 15-week abortion ban is being challenged elsewhere in Florida state courts, and if it is upheld, then a recently passed six-week ban would also take effect. But Florida courts have delivered victories for progressive activists on other issues, partially blocking a ban on health care for transgender minors and lifting a ban on Medicaid payments for gender-affirming care. A court also temporarily blocked a state ban on minors attending drag shows. I think it bodes well for us because I think it shows that even in Florida, the courts can rule in favor of progressive issues and issues of freedom of religion and speech and thought and education, Silver said. These are good signs that these types of cases can succeed. New York. New York State has robust legal protections for abortion, and National Council of Jewish Women's New York chapter celebrated a victory last week when Governor Kathy Hochul signed a bill protecting New York-based doctors and medical providers who provide abortion or reproductive health-related services to patients from out of state. Aviva Zadoff, Director of Advocacy at National Council of Jewish Women New York, said her chapter organized a virtual lobby day with Jews for Repro, an initiative from the organization centered around mobilizing Jews to advocate for reproductive rights. NCJW in New York has other items on the agenda for the next legislative uh, session, including advocating for the Equal Rights Amendment, which would enshrine abortion protection into the New York State Constitution, and a a comprehensive bill mandating sex education in public and charter schools, and a bill that would regulate crisis pregnancy centers, which are generally run by Christian activists and counsel pregnant people against abortion that pose as genuine full-service reproductive health clinics. Since the Dobbs decision came down a year ago, we've seen states across the United States passing abortion bans and making abortion access very limited, Zadoff said. We believe New York as a progressive state, as a state where its leaders say they can su- that they support abortion access, should be stepping up at this time and doing everything it can to not only protect and preserve abortion access for people who live in the state, but also to make sure that those who live in states where abortion is inaccessible can come to New York and access the services that they need. At the national level, NCJW is keeping an eye on medication abortion, an issue which is set to return to the courts as early as October. 
In April, the Supreme Court froze restrictions on abortion pills that had been put in place by lower court rulings. We know that we're on the right side of history. We know that Jews support the ability to access abortion. We know that people of faith overwhelmingly support abortion access, Rabban said. And so it's a matter of keeping up the fight for the long term. And I think that is our challenge, and we're ready to do it. And next from JTA, James Crown, one of Chicago's leading Jewish philanthropists, dies in racetrack crash by Asaf Elias Shalev. James Crown, a Chicago billionaire and major donor to Jewish causes, died last Sunday in a crash at a racetrack in Colorado while celebrating his 70th birthday. His sudden death at the Aspen Motorsports Park drew immediate eulogies and condolences from Chicago's Jewish leaders as well as President Joe Biden, former President Barack Obama, Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson, and others. Crown headed his family's investment firm, Henry Crown & Company, which is named after James' grandfather. He also served on the boards of J.P. Morgan and General Dynamics. Forbes estimated the Crown family's wealth at about $10.2 billion in 2020. The Pitkin County Coroner's Office announced the death in a press release saying that Crown suffered blunt force trauma after his car struck a wall at the racetrack. A leading philanthropist in Chicago, Crown had recently launched a fight by local business leaders against violent crime in the city. His charitable legacy is tied up with that of the larger Crown family, who are known as prominent backers of various Chicago charities, Jewish, Jewish institutions, and Democratic Party politics. The Crown name adorns a range of institutions across the city, Crown Family Philanthropies is a longtime funder of JTA and its parent company, 70 Faces Media. James' uh, 98-year-old father, Lester Crown, called his son the leader of our family both intellectually and emotionally in an interview Monday in the Chicago Sun-Times. James is one of seven children born to Lester and Renee Crown. Among those shaken by the news of the fatal accident was Lonnie Nassatir, who heads Chicago's Jewish United Fund and knows the Crown family well. It's a loss for the Jewish people. It's a loss for the Chicago Jewish community and for our city of Chicago. It's just a great loss because this was a really creative mind who had so much business experience and understood our city and understood our community, Nassatir told the Jewish Philanthropy. Nassatir also recalled that Crown mobilized to help Jewish charities when the pandemic began and threatened the future of Jewish communal infrastructure. He was really concerned about taking care of the Jewish ecosystem at this perilous time, Nassatir told EJP. I remember we had several conversations about what we can do to make sure that we can stabilize Jewish overnight camps, day schools, and early childhood centers. In a statement released following the death, President Biden said Crown represented America at its best, industrious, big-hearted, and always looking out for each other. He was a good man, a dear friend, and a great American. Chicago's mayor, meanwhile, said with his generosity, Crown embodied the soul of Chicago. And next from JTA, as Pittsburgh shooters stood trial, members of a congregation he attacked found parallels with Palestinians in the West Bank by Eliyahu Friedman. 
About two weeks ago, the CEO of Hyas, the Jewish Refugee Aid Group, testified in the trial of the Pittsburgh Synagogue gunman, discussing how his group's partnership with one of the building's congregations prompted the shooter to commit the attack. As he took the stand, some members of that congregation, Dor Hadash, were far from Pittsburgh. They were in the midst of a tour of Israel in the West Bank whose goal was to bring synagogues to beat Palestinians and Arab Israelis as well as Jewish Israelis. But despite the distance, Dor Hadash Rabbi Amy Bardak saw a thematic parallel between the trial and the group's time in the West Bank. We were before the shooting very committed to refugee rights, Bardak said of her congregation during an interview earlier this month in the city of Bethlehem. And after the shooting, this congregation did not shrink from its activism, but leaned into it even further. Bardak added that the trip was an opportunity to dip our toe into thinking about refugees in the context of this land and country. The nine-day trip, run by an organization called Shlemut, is among the latest initiatives aiming to familiarize American Jews with Palestinians as well as Israelis. The itinerary split time between Israel and the West Bank, and according to Shlemut's website, ask participants to reimagine how to integrate Israel-Palestine into their life and work. For the Dor Hadash delegation, however, there was another dimension to the tour. While the trip had been scheduled before the trial date was set, the court proceedings have resurfaced memories from the shootings, from the shooting, and spurred the Dor Hadash participants to connect their own trauma to both the Israeli and Palestinian experience. The trauma for Dor Hadash awakened something in me that I would not just as an individual have known about, said Wendy Kobe, a Dor Hadash member who participated in the trip. It allows me to be more sensitive to those kinds of traumas that people and communities experience. Referring to a Palestinian villager, the group who was worried about his home being demolished because it was built without a permit approved by Israeli authorities, Bardak said, the fear and anxiety that he spoke about reminds me of those early days after the shooting. Listening to his description of what she called the stage of acute traumatic response, Bardak, who worked for the Jewish Federation of Greater Pittsburgh at the time of the 2018 attack, thought of the immediate aftermath of the shooting. Many Pittsburgh Jews described the same symptoms, with their bodies in adrenaline overdrive. In the days following the shooting, Israeli trauma specialists saw parallels between the attack and the experience of Israeli terror victims. The Israel Trauma Coalition, which aids Israeli civilians experiencing trauma as well as victims of natural disasters and conflicts around the world, sent a delegation to Pittsburgh soon after the shooting. The group's CEO, Talia Lebanon, said in a statement at the time, As Israelis, we see an obligation to share this knowledge with communities in crisis all over the world, and even more so with our brothers and sisters in the Jewish communities of North America. Bardak referred to the Israel Trauma Coalition's work in Pittsburgh, which she said helped us enormously, adding that she wished the coalition could help Palestinians as well. She also said she was struck by the ongoing trauma of Israeli soldiers who have to do this. She added, the unhealed trauma here is enormously sad. It was Shlemut's first time bringing synagogue delegations on the trip, which was funded by participant fees ranging from $1,800 to $3,600 on a sliding scale. 
Shleimut's founder, Ilana Sumka, is a former staff member of Encounter, a long-running program that brings American Jews to the West Bank to learn about Palestinians' experiences. She also founded the Center for Non-Jewish Violence, a group that organizes American Jews to oppose Israel's occupation of the West Bank through dis, uh, civil disobedience. Shleimut, which began operating in 2018, has worked to blend social justice activism with spiritual practice. Its delegations to Israel and the West Bank aim to split time evenly between Jewish Israelis on one hand and Arab Israelis and Palestinians on the other. That's a departure from the traditional itineraries of most U.S. trips, synagogue trips to Israel, which largely spend their time in Jewish-Israeli areas. Shlemuth's focus is on Israeli and Palestinian human rights activists and progressive groups and has little engagement with right-wing or pro-settler Israeli organizations, though participants did speak with individual right-wing Israelis. Throughout the Shleimut itinerary, participants hear from leaders of nonprofits that oppose Israel's West Bank occupation, such as B'Tselem, Breaking the Silence, Adalah, and Combatants for Peace. The trip began June 6th and took participants to Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, and towns in northern Israel, in addition to the Palestinian West Bank cities of Ramallah, Bethlehem, and Hebron, as well as smaller villages. The group walked through multiple Israeli West Bank checkpoints, visited a Palestinian farm as well as a kibbutz, and attended the Tel Aviv Pride Parade and a Jerusalem protest against the government's proposed judicial overhaul. The group discussed Jewish-Israeli as well as Palestinian trauma, including the legacy of the Holocaust and what Sumka called contemporary Jewish-Israeli pain from wars over the last 75 years and terror attacks. I feel honored to have played a role in supporting the Dor Hadash members, the opportunity to apply their own values of tikkun olam to the situation in Israel-Palestine, said Sumka, referring to the traditional Jewish imperative to repair the world. Their resilience and their commitment to justice for all, whether in the U.S. or Israel-Palestine, is an inspiration. The Shleimut trip began in the middle of 11 days of wrenching testimony in Pittsburgh from survivors of the attack, relatives of victims, and first responders. One trip member had testified at the trial just before flying to Israel to come on the trip, but declined to speak to JTA at the congregation's request. Dor Hadash member Rich Weinberg said the congregation is not overly involved right now in the proceedings because the synagogue opposes giving the shooter the death penalty, a sentence the prosecution is pursuing. On June 16th, the defendant was found guilty on all counts, and the sentencing phase of the trial began this past week. We made our appeal to the Justice Department, said Weinberg, who chairs Dor Hadash's social action committee, and they moved in a different direction. After the publication of this article, Dor Hadash President Joe Recht said in a statement, the congregation has been heavily involved with the trial, including multiple members testifying and others attending daily court proceedings. Although Dor Hadash did issue a letter urging the DOJ not to seek the death penalty, that has not impacted our ongoing involvement nor our support for the justice process. In the nearly five years since it occurred, the Pittsburgh shooting has become a tragic reference point for discussing anti-Semitism in the United States. But on the trip, Weinberg connected the shooting with another attack on a house of worship, the 1994 shooting at the Cave, the cave of the Patriarchs in Hebron, 
in which an American-born Israeli settler killed 29 Muslims at prayer. Weinberg was dismayed, he said, when the group visited that shooter's gravestone and read an inscription on the monument saying he died with clean hands and a pure heart, especially because Pittsburgh Jews made an effort to avoid saying the name of the man who committed the 2018 attack. It was shocking to come to the burial site of Goldstein and observe that he's venerated as a Jewish martyr, Weinberg said, referencing the Hebron shooter, whose burial site is treated as a pilgrimage site by a small minority of Jewish extremists. The trip uh, included a group from Tehia, a Detroit-area congregation that, like Dor Hadash, is Reconstructionist. Sumka, who lives in Belgium, hopes synagogues that go on Schlemuth's tour will go on to form relationships that, in the past, synagogues have pursued with Jewish Israelis, such as forming a sister-city relationship with a Palestinian community or inviting Palestinians to speak at an event. Rabbi Alana Alpert of Tekia said Dor Hadash members' participation in the trip makes her feel very hopeful for the American Jewish community. She added that by going on the trip, members of Dor Hadash are doubling down on their commitment to the kinds of justice work that made them a target in the first place. And next from JTA, the reform movement is ending its standalone Semester in Israel program amid declining enrollment by Jackie Hajdenberg. The reform movement is folding its high school program in Israel into a larger non-denominational program in an effort to cut costs and streamline operations amid declining enrollment. Starting this fall, the Union for Reform Judaism's Heller High program, in which high school students spend a semester studying in Israel, will merge with the Alexander Muss High School in Israel. Heller High will move from Kibbutz Tzuba, outside of Jerusalem, to the Muss campus near Tel Aviv, and will become a specialized track in the Muss program, with its students joining other Muss participants for secular studies. The Heller students will continue to live together in a dormitory, take their own Jewish studies classes, and celebrate holidays together. We don't think there's a Reformed Jewish way to teach calculus, or a Reformed Jewish way to clean the dormitories, or a Reformed Jewish way to make vegan meals in the dining hall, Rabbi Rick Jacobs, URJ's president, told JTA, but we are very committed to the way in which we teach Jewish history, Israel history, the way we engage with our students around holidays, the way that we travel through a country and build even stronger alliances with the reform movement there. About Musk, Jacobs added, that was completely obvious to them and completely comfortable for them that we continue this history. The decision to merge Heller and Musk announced last week is the latest in a string of changes to reform movement programs serving teens, some of which may have reduced the pipeline of high schoolers interested in a movement-run Israel semester. In 2018, the movement announced it would shutter Cuts Camp, which had a focus on teen leadership and also announced changes to immersive programs focused on volunteering and social justice. Early in the pandemic, amid payroll cuts across the Jewish nonprofit world and beyond, it dramatically scaled back staffing for NIFTI, the reform youth movement. Last year, it said it would hire again in each of the movement's 19 regions, but only on a part-time basis. Last week, Nifty announced a listening tour to guide the direction of the next phase of our movement. The merger also comes amid widespread efforts to cut costs within the reform movement. 
A decade ago, URJ sold half of its New York headquarters, and last year, Hebrew Union College decided to end its rabbinical training program in Cincinnati, where it was founded nearly 150 years ago because of declining enrollment. In 2020, according to the foreword, Jacobs floated the idea of merging part of URJ's operations with those of other denominations which are experiencing similar struggles. Both conservative rabbinical schools in New York and Los Angeles have shrunk their campuses or put them up for sale, for example. Religious life is changing. The nature of congregations are changing not just in the Jewish community and not just in the reform community across all Jewish lines, Jacob said. And out of those changes sometimes come new creativity and new approaches. Founded in 1961, Heller High has enrolled students for a semester in high school, most often during their sophomore or junior years. According to the program's website, it has historically had roughly 100 students each year, split between two semesters. But this year there were just 58, 18 in the fall and 40 in the spring. Mira Schoenberg, who attended Heller High as a junior in the fall of 2022, found out about Heller's overhaul from a group chat with her classmates from the program. I'm actually really sad about it, she said. It's just kind of, I would say, disappointing to know that nobody else is going to have the same experience that we did and that we were one of the last groups of people to actually go on Kibbutz Tsuba, she said. They're really losing a specific safe space and a space where all of us are coming from different backgrounds but having the shared Reform Judaism of our everyday practices. Jacobs declined to share specific details about Heller's budget, but acknowledged that cutting spending was part of what motivated the decision. Merging with Muss, he said, allows Heller to focus on Jewish studies and our ability to deliver the core aspects of the program. It's going to be cost-effective for both Muss and for Heller High because the cost of the general studies is a very significant cost, he said, and to deliver it at excellence is, of course, a commitment. One group that will likely be hurt by the new partnership is Heller's faculty, some of whom may no longer have jobs in the fall. Jacobs said that Heller's faculty are very beloved to us and that conversations are ongoing between Muss and Heller High regarding the teacher's employment. Keeping some of the faculty on for next year, he said, is certainly very possible. The program is also in the midst of hiring a new director. We are hopeful, and those details are getting worked out because they're important details, Jacobs added. These are important people, and as the must people look at our program, they've been quite impressed by the level of our faculty. Adding Heller to its campus will not constitute a shift in direction for MUS, which frequently shares its space with other high school programs. Some American, European, and Australian Jewish high schools have their students spend part of their year there. Muss and Heller High have long traditions of connecting teens to Judaism in Israel, Steve Kutno, head of Alexander Muss High School in Israel, said in a statement last Wednesday. This partnership allows us to grow the impact we offer students through high-quality accredited coursework, independent living opportunities, and personal relationships that share memories that last a lifetime. Talia Rappaport, who attended both programs and returned from Heller High in May, said she hopes that moving Heller onto the Musk campus will create a bigger community of students. Future Heller students won't be able to enjoy the intimacy of Kibbutz Tuba, she said, but she's excited they will be able to live and study with a larger group. A lot of the time, I noticed the differences 
and I noticed what's good about each program. I noticed what's not so great about each program, said Rappaport, who lives in Northern California. And I think that them being on the same campus will really help them notice those differences and maybe make both programs better. So I think they can learn from each other. And next from JTA, Italy to bar soccer players from wearing number 88, which has coded meaning for neo-Nazis by Jacob Gervis. Soccer players in Italy will no longer be permitted to wear the number 88, which has a secret anti-Semitic meaning among neo-Nazis, thanks to a joint initiative announced Tuesday between Italy's government and the Italian Soccer Federation. The number 88 has been used by neo-Nazis as a coded anti-Semitic symbol, meaning Heil Hitler, as H is the eighth letter in the alphabet. In March, a fan of the Roman club SS Lazio was banned from the team's games for life after wearing a jersey with the number 88 and the name Hitlerson. As part of the new policy, officials are able to stop gameplay if they hear anti-Semitic chants or are made aware of anti-Semitic acts in the stands. Such behavior is somewhat commonplace at soccer stadiums across Europe and other teams and leagues in Germany and England have recently taken steps to stem anti-Semitism and protect Jewish fans. The new initiative also includes a code of ethics in accordance with the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, the global coalition based in Sweden that works to advance Holocaust awareness and education. Italian Interior Minister called the new rule an adequate and efficient response to intolerable prejudice that too often arises in our stadiums, according to the Associated Press. According to Sports Illustrated, two players in Italy's top league, Serie A, currently wear number 88, Lazio's Toma Basic and Atalanta's Mario Pasalic. France gets its first Orthodox woman rabbi by Alice de Orléon, Paris. After graduating from an American rabbinical program this month, a French woman has likely become her country's first Orthodox female rabbi. Miriam Ackerman Summer, 26, has since last year been running Ayeka, one of Paris's only modern Orthodox congregations, with her husband Emile Ackerman. He also earned a rabbinical degree this month from Yeshivat Chovavei Torah, a liberal Orthodox seminary in New York City. Ackerman Summer graduated from its partner school for women, Yeshivat Maharat, which has an equivalent curriculum and ordains its students as clergy, some of whom take on the title rabbi, or a variation on that word. Both schools were founded by Avi Weiss, a rabbi long known for advocating for women in Orthodox spaces. Now, with their degrees, they are qualified to adjudicate matters of Jewish law for their congregants, something Ackerman Summer calls a tremendous responsibility. Jewish girls in France grow up surrounded by women who excel in all areas of civilian life. They are lawyers, doctors, teachers, but all of our rabbis are long-bearded men. We need women to be involved in Jewish life as well, she told JTA on the phone the day before her ordination on June 15th. Orthodoxy, which traditionally prohibits women from leading prayer services or becoming rabbis, has long been the predominant Jewish denomination in France, which is home to close to 450,000 Jews, or one of the world's largest Jewish populations. Some liberal segments of modern Orthodoxy, a subset of the denomination that strives to adapt traditional Jewish observance to contemporary life, 
have ordained women as rabbis and permitted them to lead some parts of services, but that approach is more widespread in countries such as the United States and Israel. This is a historic moment in the history of French Judaism, said Michel de Saint-Charon, the French philosopher and expert on religion, recently co-wrote a book about what it's like to convert to Judaism or come back to the Jewish fold later in life with Ackerman's Summer that will be published in October. They're an example for many. Other women have already followed in Ackerman Summer's footsteps and started studying to be rabbis themselves. There are only believed to be five other women rabbis in France, all under the liberal umbrella, similar to the reform movement in the United States. Delphine Horvillère, who has made headlines for actively promoting women's voices in Judaism in recent years, is among the most well-known. Ayeka regularly draws 50 people for Shabbat services, and women are separated from men, per Orthodox practice, by a divider that seats them side by side. The congregation holds prayers according to the standards of what is known as a partnership minion, a model that is followed in a number of liberal Orthodox congregations, largely in the United States and Israel, in which women can chant weekly Torah readings and lead certain portions of the services. Some are perfectly all right with how Orthodox communities work, and that's great for them. I, as a woman, am outraged whenever I'm at the synagogue and I cannot hear or see what is going on because I'm seated far away in the back behind the men or on a balcony where I can't hear very well, Ackerman Summer said. We offer a response to women, among others, who want more participation in the ritual and in the study. Some in France have criticized the couple's philosophy, Others believe the whole concept of modern orthodoxy to be illegitimate. In Jewish tradition, the notion of moder modernity does not mean anything at all. The strength of Judaism is that there has been no change since Mount Sinai, said Rabbi Yves Marciano, longtime rabbi of the Orthodox Le Tournelle Synagogue in Paris, which is situated a few minutes from where Ayeka is located. Therefore, modern orthodox, it's a very ambiguous concept. But Ackerman said their movement does not aim to be a revolution. We hope to be able to show the French Jewish community that we do not want to reform or fight existing communities, but merely open new doors, he said. With friend Tali Trev Bitusi, Ackerman Summer also offers a series of study courses for women and men called Kol Elas, a play on the words Kolel, the term for a group of Jewish scholars who study together and the French female pronoun L. She also runs a podcast called Daf Yummy, a play on the practice of Daf Yomi, the practice of studying one double-sided page of the Babylonian Talmud per day. Those who come here have an intellectual and spiritual thirst. They are not only women who come as feminists, and the topics studied aren't only related to women, obviously. It's about getting to know Jewish tradition the way it has long only been taught to men, Ackerman Summer explained. Trev Fitusi has been a member of Ayeka from its start. I wasn't really going to synagogue anymore as I always felt out of place. Ayeka is the only one where I would go. Modern orthodoxy makes me feel included. Here I feel like I exist, said Trev Fitusi. Those who join Ayeka have been looking for another way to be Jewish, a way where men and women have very similar roles and where both men and women can assert their identity as men or women while strictly following Jewish tradition, Saint-Charon said. 
Ten men are still needed to complete a minion prayer quorum, but Ackerman Summer can then be one can then be the one reading the Mourner's Kaddish prayer, for instance. Ackerman Summer was raised in a non-religious household. She discovered Judaism as a teenager through the teachings of her uncle, Alexis Bloom, who was rabbi of the community in Neuilly-sur-Seine, a suburb near Paris. She only started actively studying Jewish texts after meeting her husband in 2017. Marciano is cautious about how Ayeka will blend into France's religious fabric. There are way fewer liberal Jews in France than in the U.S. I don't see how their movement will fit in here, but we have to give time to time. I have no doubt they will have followers, and I don't mind the sunshines for everyone, he says. Despite the fact that Ackerman Summer lives in Paris, she studied at Yeshivat Maharat remotely and is promoting the school to other French women. Her goal, send as many Orthodox women to study there as possible and help them become Jewish leaders in France. About ten new rabbis are ordained every year at Yeshivat Maharat. As of now, two French women are studying there and will be ordained in the next two years. Our hope is that we initiate a movement that goes way beyond us, she said. And next from JTA, Sheldon Harnick, the lyricist who made Jewish longing music, uh, universal in Fiddler on the Roof, dies at 99, by Ron Campeas. The moment when Sheldon Harnick realized that his new musical might be something special came when he sang the lyrics he had just composed for a new song, Sunrise Sunset. He was sitting in the basement studio of his friend and collaborator, the composer Jerry Bach, in New Rochelle, New York. It was 1961, and they were in the throes of writing Fiddler on the Roof. Bach had originally meant for the melody to be used for one of the flirtations between Tevye's three oldest daughters and their male interests, according to Wonder of Wonders, a book about Fiddler by Elisa Solomon. Harnick went a different direction, writing lyrics about the agony of unleashing a child into adulthood that would eventually be sung in the musical's pivotal wedding scene. When he was finished singing, Bach's wife Patty was weeping. We hoped with any luck that it might run a year, Harnick said in 1981 on The Songwriters, a PBS showcase series. We were totally unprepared for the impact the show would have literally around the world. Harnick, whose pans to Jewish tradition have become internationally appreciated as a reflection of cultural loss, died last Friday at his home in Manhattan. He was 99 and was the last surviving creator of Fiddler on the Roof. Harnick was born in Chicago in 1924 and was in his teens when he first encountered the stories of Sholem Aleichem, which later formed the basis for the musical but at the same time he wrote them off, Solomon quotes him as saying. Twenty or so years later, a friend gave him Sholem Aleichem's novel, Wandering Stars, about a decades-long show business romance, and Harnick was enchanted. As, a, as an adult, Harnick found that Sholem Aleichem's writing was so wonderfully human and moving and funny, Solomon quotes him as saying. He had started working with Bach in the late 1950s and told him and another partner, Joe Stein, who wrote books for musicals, that it could be good material to adapt for the stage. Stein said Wandering Stars was too vast and complex to adapt, but what about Shalom Aleichem's short stories, which Stein's father would read to him as a child in Yiddish? The trio searched Manhattan for an extant English copy of the stories and found a second-hand copy 
at a bookshop on Park Avenue South. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, and I thank you very much for listening.